Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and this is episode 65. Um, today, as I record this, it is July 31st, um, 2019. Um, and this day marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of Italian Jewish chemist, writer and Holocaust survivor um, Primo Levi. On the occasion of um, Levi's centenary, Giacomo Lishner um, has written 100 Years of Primo Levi. Um, this is an essay which offers 10 reasons to, um, as Lishner puts it, reread and reconsider the empathy, rage and understated greatness of If This Is a Man. If This Is a Man is the memoir um, which describes Levy's arrest as a member of the Italian anti-fascist resistance during the Second World War and his incarceration in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Um, he was incarcerated from February 1944 until the camp was liberated on the 27th of January 1945. If This Is a Man was published in 1947. Um, the essay um, by Giacomo Lechner, um is published in over Journal. Um, it is in the paper journal right now and goes live today on the website which is at overland.org.au. I highly recommend the essay. Um, I'm very grateful that Giacomo was able to take time to um, talk to me. Um, it was an incredibly um, enlightening conversation and I think Giacomo has this amazing way of um, explaining things without simplifying them or um, sort of reducing them to any kind of simple answer and I really think that um, with the topics around his research that's so important. Um, I think that um, Giacomo's essay is a wonderful way into um, the memoir. Um, I had not read If This Is A Man, I had read other work by um, Levy but um, on reading his essay, I picked up the book, and yeah, it's it's a magnificent, magnificent piece of um, writing. And I think that Giacomo's essay is an extremely good way into it. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, um, um, Giacomo Lushner um, is associate professor of history and film at Victoria University of Wellington, and serves on the board of the Holocaust Centre of New Zealand. Um, he is the author of Film and the Shore in France and Italy, that was published in 2008 and again in 2015, and Fascism in Italian Cinema since 1945. Um, that book has the most beautiful um, subtitle, which is The Politics and Aesthetics of Memory. So yes, um, I hope that you enjoy this conversation and I hope that you read Giacomo's um, essay. Um, it'll be a wonderful way to mark the centenary and you can see read it at overland.org.au. Thanks heaps. Ah, did you want me to start with? Uh, oh, I would so love that. Can you read it bit? in Italian? Yeah. Oh, that'd be which, so great. I put them both. Um, I reckon. How about just the that actual first? Start. Yeah. Per mia fortuna, sono stato deportato ad Auschwitz solo nel no, nel 1944, e cioè dopo che il governo tedesco, data la crescente scarsità di manodopera, aveva stabilito di allungare la vita media dei prigionieri da eliminarsi 
concedendo sensibili miglioramenti nel tenore di vita e sospendendo temporaneamente le uccisioni ad arbitrio dei singoli. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you for your amazing essay. It's just incredible. And I thought we could maybe start, if you're willing, just how would you introduce yourself and your work in the context of this essay? Um, well, Tenago, thank you very much for having me, for having me on. Um, on your podcast, uh, how would I introduce myself? I, I will, I will not subject you to my tereo, but uh, <laughs> my mihi is that uh, the seven hills of Rome are my monga, and the Tevere is my awa. So I'm a Roman. Uh, I was born and grew up in Rome, uh, but my family, uh, the generation before me, uh, is more uh, scattered and it all comes from different places and. My um, my father's family came from Hungary. Uh, my grandfather actually came down from a Jewish family in Hungary. Came uh, from um, from Hungary to Italy in the twenties to study, as a result of early anti-Semitic uh, measures in Hungary that um, prohibited, well, that limited the number of Jews who could go to university. Um, and so he uh, went to Italy, and uh, his family. Um, his parents and six brothers uh, all got caught up in the Holocaust afterwards. Uh, one of them survived. Um, the others, the, the others all perished. Whereas on my mother's side, um, they were um, also half Jewish and from Florence, the Jewish side from Florence. And uh, my mother's, uh, my mother was born in June, uh, in July, nineteen forty-four. Typical. Uh, and her father was deported to Auschwitz, so my grandfather was deported to Auschwitz in February um, of that year, so she never met him. Um, and so w the reason I'm telling you this is a sort of, I guess, uh, positionality. It's an introduction, but it's also to say, uh, yeah, where, where I'm coming from and, uh, and to uh, just say for, for a moment that uh, the history of genocide yeah, any genocide uh, is is um, is very unique in the way that it leaves a, a a hole, like a great big gaping hole in the Fakapapa of of those caught up in it, and um, uh, and much of the work of uh, studying the Holocaust is is an attempt to to at least uh, understand the contours of that gap. If not, you can't fill it again, but you can sort of work out its shape and size. Um, as professionally, I am an historian. I'm, I'm not a literature scholar, <laughs> and I'm also not a film scholar. Even though mostly I work on film, uh, I I am interested. I've always been interested in uh, contemporary history, twentieth century onwards, and and in and more even more in the politics of how history is represented and remembered mm. in the public sphere, and that's how I got into film quite early on in my PhD uh, back in England. Um, it was a way of studying cinema and popular culture as a piece of the memory puzzle. Um, there's a nice image uh, that the French sociologist Marc Auger um, creates. Of he thinks about memory as a um, as a cliff, and the, what we remember is the cliff itself, and what we've forgotten is the sea that constantly eats away at the, at the cliff. It's French, so 
it's a romantic image that I quite <laughs> like. But Jay Winter, who's not French, he's American, uh, but works on France, intervened on that and he said, yes, that's great, but it's missing one element, which is the surf. You know, it's the bit, the, um, the liminal space, if, um, you know, some scholars might call it. Um, I think historians, as an historian, I would prefer the frontier between mm. what we remember and what we've forgotten. And he calls that silence. So the things we haven't forgotten, but we'd rather not talk about. And I think studying uh, popular culture, film in particular, from a from an historical point point of view, is uh, is the study of the interaction between those three those three aspects. That's fantastic. Um, when you think about the work of um, Primo Levi, do, like that seems so, especially this book, especially if this is a man. It has this interesting thing, like where where it does seem to want to talk and speak, and I'm wondering where you first came across this work. Like, is this a work that um, was around in your teenage years, or is it a work that you came to through your academic study? Or yeah, where does it sit? No, I, it was. Um not through academic study. We didn't even study it at school. I read it. It was my first... Uh, I must have been 12 or 13. Wow. And it must have been... Well, it was my the first book on the Holocaust that I read. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew it. I still know it as If This Is a Man, which is also the tri- title of the British edition. Mm-hmm. But in the American tradition, it's Survival at Auschwitz. So, oh, yeah. Uh, survival in Auschwitz. So if some of the listeners uh, might find it in that way. It's the same book. Yeah. Um, so for me, it played the role that I think for uh, many people, the Diary of Anne Frank plays. Yes. Uh, but the main difference, and uh, you know, maybe I should have checked before <laughs> before reading it at the time, was that, of course, the Diary of Anne Frank is uplifting. It's mm. sad mm. and melancholic, but it's uplifting because it's full of hope. And and because, well, to put it bluntly, it stops at her arrest. Yeah. Whereas if this is a man starts at his arrest, and and right there, you know, outside of the relative merits of the books, uh, there's an historical lesson there for um, for historians as well as you know people interested in history from a lay lay perspective, which is about narrative. The narrative is always. Um, narrative is always both historical and political so where you decide to start your story or your history if you're writing a history book and where you decide to stop it and where you put the seizures the the breaks uh changes the argument changes what you're saying um and so levy's book even though it's a story of survival cannot be a story of triumph and um that it cannot contain an uplifting message uh, because of where it starts um and and I think that you now I'm thinking about it now uh, it probably affected um, well it's certainly something about it resonated with me even though the Holocaust didn't really feature it wasn't uh, part of my upbringing um, you know I I knew that I had a grandfather who died in Auschwitz but when you don't meet your grandfather it's mm. not a loss it's sort of you know it's uh, um, and we knew that we had Jewish ancestry but we also you know my two grandmothers were Catholic so we weren't formally Jewish. Mm. My parents were communists. So mm. We were not. You know, we we're not religious. So the Holocaust didn't feature, but the but it did. It did. We I learned later that it featured uh, in my mum's life throughout her life through PTSD, really, with, mm. um, which I so witnessed 
some uh, symptoms of later in her life and um, and I guess there must have been uh, something to that because uh, for me too because the the absence of a, a happy ending even mm. even though it's a story about survival really resonated with me it continues to inform um, how I think about Holocaust history in, in general that it's something that where the ending is not an ending it, carry, you know, it, it carries on interestingly um, Levy's follow-up to uh, If This Is A Man which is included in the same volume uh, usually mm. it's called The Truth mm. and it's a story of his return home right so if there's ever a moment for to, you know, to reflect on the fact that in spite of the genocidal attempt you know the Jews continue to survive. He continues to 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 live. It come, you know, so it comes out of Auschwitz. That would be it. And yet he calls it the truth. Mm. Uh, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't really achieve peace. Probably never really did. Because mm. there's an incredible quote from your essay, which I think um, really puts this particularity of the book in place. It, um, you say. Levy is afraid that to explain the Holocaust will be to explain a way to offer an end point where he can see only a truce um, to offer closure there, um, um, where where he was where he has found none, and this idea of the truce just seems so interesting, especially yeah in the in the volume I got the, the it's called the mm. truce as well and mm. or a truce and yeah I just think it's such an interesting word to lay on something rather than yeah there's there's no it it feels temporal it doesn't feel yeah yeah i i think that's probably common of, of all sorts of uh, traumatic experiences that don't that you know don't go away except through um you know really deep long work of um elaboration and mm. analysis mm. um mm. and in the case yeah and then and if they do go away if they are resolved they are resolved for the individual mm. not for mm. not collectively and that that's a major fault line in the history of the Holocaust and um, I guess how we decide to package it and yeah. understand it both as yeah. historians and especially in popular culture it, it's it's the idea that you know the narrative needs to have an end point and you want to make it relevant you want to you know you want to inspire people to you know not not go and harm themselves yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so you know understandably we look for for ways to uh, read something positive in it mm. but from the survivors what we get time and time again is is a real um a real resistance against doing that mm. Mm. um and uh the issue of, un of understanding is a paradox in in the um, in any work on the holocaust in all work on the holocaust in the sense that of course you know levy's own book is full of attempts to understand mm. Mm. Uh, and and history work is you know, rationalizing, understanding, packaging, communicating. There's it, it, no escaping that. Mm. Um, uh, but at the same time, yeah, there are, you know, both from survivors and also from thinkers, um, philosophers and, and uh, some historians, there's the fear that if you, if you make it too logical, uh, somehow you'll cheapen the experience. Uh, mm. well, yeah, and uh, that's a that's a sort of crucial debate within Holocaust uh, studies. Right? Yeah, this idea of um, cultural representation of the Holocaust and this crossover with your discipline of history, I'm just wondering how 
as a historian you read the work of course I've only ever come across his work sort of in a literary critical kind of way you know yeah. like other writers have read it and you know um talked about it and you know reading it in that literary way I'm just wondering how how is it for you reading the work as a historian or any other kind of cultural artifact of, yeah, yeah that's a good question and the short answer is that <laughs> a literary scholar reads it properly oh. <laughs> <laughs> whereas oh I, I have been told by a very good friend who you know didn't mean any harm but I think she was quite right that sometimes I've been told they read texts quite literally yeah um, and I think that that's you know it comes across <laughs> wrong but um, uh, but I think it's what an historian would call empirically yes you know yeah uh, so it, 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 yeah in short we an historian would read a work like Levy's uh, firstly as a testimony and secondly as a reflection uh, and which is, it is both things mm. you know, and it becomes a source but obviously uh, you're as an historian you're trained to be concerned about taking an individual source a, a micro history and turning it into something bigger without the appropriate contextualization um, I think a, a literary scholar would be more interested in narrative, in palimpsests, in character development and so on, in style. Uh, I, personally, I'm also interested mm, yeah. uh, in, those, in those things, but I um, come to them uh, in, um, I guess, in a slightly kind of narrow, pragmatic way, by I'm interested in how all those stylistic choices form the argument, the historical argument that the text is putting forward and that's in, whether in, uh, in literature or in, in film uh, and so um, yeah so that's how I would come to, to it the, I am a little literal that said I, I won't own up to a kind of stereotype of the historian who's guardian of their own historical moment <laughs> the one they study and just sit there tutting at the inaccuracies right yeah, yeah. Uh, <coughs> Which we do. I mean, it's quite fun. Yeah, yeah there yeah. are there are blogs and blogs that people <laughs> you know people might know what I'm talking about. It's the train spotting attitude mm. to history where that you know the double yellow lines in Downton Abbey never never should have existed. You know that that sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. I, I'm not really interested in fact. In fact, the the kind of crux of my methodology when I approach film as an historian is uh, is that we need to think about accuracy and inaccuracy in a holistic way. Mm. Um, both accuracies and inaccuracies are tools that the artist has to get their point across. And so what the historian should be interested in is the point that comes across and whether it is, um, you know, what it says, first of all, because, uh, yeah, uh, and, and secondly, how it relates to what Paul Ricoeur might call the inside of history, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, the idea that um, history is not just, and, and that's true, uh, also of historiography it's not just the retelling of events the facts it's the interpretation of those facts no? so um, I can't see a reason why a, a book uh, even a fictional book not just mm. uh, not just a memoir or a, or a film of any kind uh, shouldn't have the legitimacy to make a historical point uh, that's what yeah and that's what I'm interested in interested in that's amazing. Um, that's kind of blown my mind a little bit. Sorry, I just need to. <laughs> I give I give you an example while you recover <laughs> yeah, your mind. You give me an example of, while of I an inaccuracy that works. Um, there's a, a not very good film in my view called Master and Commander. 
Oh yeah. Uh, wait, yeah, Russell Crowe. Yeah, Russell yeah. Crowe. Uh, Nap- <laughs> Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe playing the violin on a warship during the Napoleonic Wars. It's a wonderful, enduring image. In in that film, uh, there was an historical consultant, as many historical mm. films now do, and uh, his name was Gordon Lacko, I think. And he tells the story of how they had the midshipman, who's a young young officer, give the wrong firing order. And they got like hate mail, like savage hate mail from people who loved that period in history and Uh-oh. felt offended by the inaccuracy. But in practice, they did it on purpose because it was a 16-year-old yeah. midshipman who's yeah, the son of somebody reasonably wealthy would have been picked for, to become a junior officer straight away. So not experienced and, and the wrong order was part of, the, of yeah. the character and in itself quite historically accurate or certainly mm. plausible. Mm. Uh, so they were choosing an inaccuracy on purpose to make an accurate point, but people couldn't look past the surface. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a terrifying job. <laughs> people are very expert. Um, my sense, and this you'll be able to correct me, Levy wasn't aiming to be a writer before all of this happened. And I just wonder, what is it about... Primo Levi in this situation, in the situation itself, that led to the writing. Like, um, lots of people did not write books. I'm just wondering about this. Yeah, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he wasn't, he probably wasn't going to be a writer, although it's hard to know. Yeah. Uh, he was a chemist, he mm. was heading for that. But he was also part of this generation... Uh, I don't want to say golden generations, but the world, world history is full of golden generations. But it was an amazing milieu of uh, middle class, young middle class left, leftish intellectuals uh, in Turin at the time, and amongst them many, many Jews. Mm. Um, Natalia Ginzburg was part of that generation, another wonderful writer. She was actually the editor at Einaudi who read the book when he first wrote it in 1946 oh. and, and rejected it. Um, <laughs> but that's another story. We'll talk about it later. Um, uh, but, you know, they... It's a generation that thought of culture in a different way. So they mm. were scientists, uh, some, and, and some were more humanists, but they were also kind of mountaineers and... Uh, they read Dante. They, the the book Levy's book is full of Dante references. So they were were read. They were really interested in American literature that was coming in in translation for the first time. Calvino was in that generation. Uh, Pavese was in generation. It was yeah. It was a rich, um, a rich generation that partly it didn't quite know it in the thirties, but because it was growing up under fascism, uh, it, you know, uh, Levy was born in nineteen nineteen. So. Uh, three. Yeah, by the time he was three, Italy was fascist. Mm. That's all he knew, mm. and I think they were already harboring that thirst for uh, free and 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 uh, spontaneous political debate, which would then generate new realism after the mm. war. Um. So, you know, he was interested in these things, um, but maybe he wouldn't. He wouldn't have gone on to write. I don't know. And he continued to be a chemist after the war mm. for at least twenty years, right? Mm. Um, but I think what what. What what I find in in Levy is that I think Auschwitz, the experience of Auschwitz needed to be written mm. for him, needed to be told. Like mm. he's very clear about that in the book, that even you know he doesn't see himself as a messiah who comes back with a message, but 
he's haunted by the and he, he says several prisoners um that he knew were haunted by the prospect that, of, of the necessity to tell the story uh, so it needed to be written but it also it was such an event such a place that it needed a different language to to be written in and um or through and so that meant that i don't think levy would ever have possessed the kind of prose that italian high culture required of a writer which is why his book wasn't picked up in 1947 arguably and why he was always kind of awkwardly on the doorstep of high literature in italy mm. Mm. um and auschwitz couldn't have been written in that prose i mean that that's the only way in which it is useful to think of adorno's um mm. a cliche about uh it's it's barbaric to write poetry after auschwitz i think to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, is the actual quote. It's not really about poetry, but it might be uh, about that sort of high 19th century culture, that high 19th century prose, mm. which would never have been Levy's prose. Uh, it just happened to be the right prose to write about Auschwitz. Because mm. it is, I mean, that is one of the features that you, you point out, you know, this... Um, and I must say that it is one of the startling pieces of it. Like, I um, I hadn't read it, and after I read your essay, I opened it up to have a look at it to um, just sort of see what it sounded like, and I was just absolutely hooked. And there is something so stark about the prose. And you talk about that, eh? Like, that m maybe it is the scientist, you know, which is... Is that a reason that it's a useful historical piece, maybe? Because it is uh -huh. so about empiricism, or maybe not. But I mean, I think that's what makes it a, like a really striking uh, historical source, but also a really striking book. Yeah. It's the same, the same thing. Uh, the yeah. fact that it's, it's written like a scientist, although I think that's only true if you know Italians, because it's still, like, I think, a, a, you know, like a... Um, I think a New, a New Zealand or a British or an American scientist would think it's a little bit flowery for a scientist. Wow, okay. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know enough about scientific writing. It's not written like a scientific report. No, it's got no. a little bit of that sort of Latin rhetoric yeah. to it, but yeah. just a little compared to normal European yeah. writers. And then occasionally it hits you with a four sentence, a four letter, a four word um sentence mm. which really stands out yeah uh, and um uh, and that's the case i think i quote one in the piece uh, which i never forgot when uh, when he after a selection where you know thousands of people have been selected for the gas chambers to make room for new uh, deportees um he watches a hungarian jew thank god for uh being spared and in the bed next to him as a Greek Jew who has not who has not been spared has been selected mm. and he's having double ration because then he'll go to the gas chambers and he knows about it and he's doing nothing you know, he's just um, resigned to it mm. and as he watches this act of um, giving thanks to God for for survival he finds it blasphemous mm. and he just writes if I were God I would spit uh, Kun's prayer down to the ground uh, and that's sort of that's all he needs to say, and it's mm. incredibly powerful. But I think um, I think the reason that it stood out at the time, that it stands out now, is that he understood even even in the camp itself, he understood that the essence of 
the Nazi version of genocide is the dehumanization. Mm. And he really understood that before anybody else. Um, and he, and the book becomes a kind of paradox where he kind of constantly ebbs and flows between providing what to him is incontrovertible proof that they're all dehumanized, that mm. if you've gone through it, you can't possibly, you've lost something permanently. Mm. But then moments where quite clearly he's providing evidence of the human resilience. Mm. Uh, you know, almost every chapter ebbs and flows like that. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, really, really powerful, but also kind of historically really truthful. You know, it's um, because the act itself of questioning whether you whether you've lost your humanity, whether you've been dehumanized, um, proves that you haven't, right? Uh, so there's it, it, a paradox there. Uh, but at the same time, it, it gets you to understand why, um, how the camp forces an inmate, uh, even a resilient inmate like Levy, who never, for example, harms another inmate, uh, which was normal, um, but when you force them to be, to, for example, you, you get them to be able to witness injustice to the point where they no longer bothered by the injustice or, um, or, or no, no longer may be able to recognize it. You get them to lose kind of basic tenets of human dignity, uh, solidarity, you know, humans are social and the camp is alienating, mm. it's isolating. Mm. Uh, you get them to not just not lose memory but hate memory to the point where they don't want to think about life before the camp because it's too painful. You get them to lose the sense of mercy for others. Um, even mourning becomes something that they, it becomes a luxury. They can't afford to mourn. And that's going back to the question about closure. That's um, the defining experience of the liberation of the camps in, in my view. I mean, listen to lots and lots and lots of survival testimonies is that uh, is the ambivalence between yeah I'm free but it's also the moment in which you can for the first time sometimes in years can concentrate on those who went there with the, on the train with you and didn't make it into the camp mm. um, so it's a moment of mourning the liberation you know from a free point of view from a contemporary point of view we would think the liberation is about elation mm. but it's actually despair mm. and or the combination of both, um, and he, you know, he he gets all this uh, in w and 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 conveys them in in uh, in ways that are clear and uh, emotionally really powerful. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, can I ask a question that I didn't prep you? Uh, totally cool, sure. if not. Sure. But um, one of your statements, which I really. I, it, it's a lack of understanding on my behalf and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, indulging me um, you talk about this about the historical, social and economic prerogatives um, that define the Holocaust as a new modern kind of genocide and I, I start to get the feeling of that in reading the book Like I was grateful to read your essay first because I was thinking in what ways is this economically driven and socially driven and you know and and yeah. that humiliation point I think is something like that I'd you know like I feel like through Hollywood I'd seen this idea of you know like these sort of almost fetishization of the physical suffering but the moments where the guards look straight through them and won't answer questions and you know these moments where 
they seem to be just designed to make them feel homesick, you know, and just sad. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about these these three, how it was kind of a modern kind of genocide? Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure, absolutely. Thanks for that. That's it's it's good to have the opportunity to uh, <laughs> to to talk about that more. Um, so I, the reason I um, expressed it that way the historical, social and economic prerogatives that define the Holocaust as a modern genocide rather than the uniqueness of the Holocaust yes. is that unique is a loaded term, right? And one that's the, the subject of, of many debates. And in a sense, every historical event is unique mm. uh, in a really obvious sense. Uh, but in another, of course, um, the Holocaust has been kind of elevated to something uh, uh, something that's kind of universal um, and and that's a problematic thing on the one hand it allows us to you know keep thinking about it and do great work and um, and and sometimes use it to raise consciousness mm. about other genocides or or about you know social justice issues human rights issues but on the other it um, it can become both exploitative and also kind of a way to erase other events uh, and and create a, a kind of hierarchy of suffering that I'm really uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. So um, so th this is a kind of long-winded way. The, the way, the, the expression I use is a long-winded way to say it happened once in one place. It's a, it's a realm that is entirely, it's, a, it's an event that is entirely human Mm. It's entirely physical, right? It's not metaphysical. It's not religious. It's um, uh, it happened for certain reasons. There are responsibilities, yeah. Um, but it presents it, it it carries characteristics, prerogatives that are unique to it, yeah? uh, and in many cases unprecedented. Now, is historically, uh, what's unprecedented is the state, the nation state. Uh, using what up to that point, or at least up to World War One, had been a sign of progress, yeah? its ability to be uh, technologically advanced, for example, but mm. also logic, and and driven by uh, reason rather than religion, so to speak, um, and taking all those things that in the nineteenth century seemed signs of progress and direct them towards genocide mm. uh, in a really organized, systematic so. You know those those characteristics that ap apply to the that pertain to the modern nation state, the bureaucracy, the organization. Those all get put in the service of death, um, and obviously, you know, mass warfare had already done that to some extent. Mm. But genocide is is yeah, it's a different it's a different thing, and um, the Nazis push it further by taking decisions, especially later in the war, that make no sense. Uh, in in bellic terms, in terms of warfare, mm. uh, at the moment in you know last two years when they're losing, they are they are putting uh, resources towards uh, to towards genocide, uh, even though it makes no sense. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That so that's the historical side. The social side is both you know obviously na Nazism and totalitarianism uh, present you know. Say say things about society uh, that we hadn't thought of yet until until then, um, 
the ability to rally you know, and mobilize mass society uh, towards those sort of aims is it, quite sobering in yeah. the ways of we think about how we think about humanity. Um, but also socially it kind of uh, it shocked us because of society within the camps. Mm. Uh, mm. David Rousset in 1947 is a French communist who was uh, interned in Bukhambal, Buk- Mauthausen, I may, I may be getting this wrong, but in, in a camp. Uh, in Germany, he calls it concentrationary universe, and it it's it's a sociological theory of the camp uh, and the idea that it is kind of both a caricature and an abomination of outside capitalist society, uh, and that morality is flipped on its you know uh, on, on its back mm. and um, uh, within it you know so he but but and Rousseau's theory without you know sort of going too much into it is a little flawed by the fact that he, his perspective is not one of a person who's been ta- who's been marked for genocide mm, mm. he's a political prisoner yeah so his perspective will never be the perspective of millions of Jews and gypsies um, who, who were marked for murder because of who they were because of their birth right um, some of some of his understanding of the concentration universe doesn't work for for those groups of people um, but Nevertheless, he kind of understands things about society within the camp that that are still true. Mm, yeah. mm. And economically, just to, it won't turn into a lecture, but, um, uh, well, economically, gen- the Holocaust has its own economy, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, the Jews pay for their own transport to the gas chambers uh, by way, sometimes literally, in the long trips, sometimes the Germans uh, in an amazing act of, of cruelty and and uh, yeah they they actually they use it as part of the deception by selling tickets you know say okay yeah, we're transporting you to work you need to pay money and so the community funds the, its own transport to death uh, but also more commonly they pay by what they leave behind so they yeah. take the, the, um, the few possessions with them and then those possessions are taken from them uh, um, the Sonderkommando at Birkenau had to, the you know, first act as it emptied the gas chambers of bodies was to have to look for gold teeth and take and extract them from the corpses. Um, we know about the hair, we know about the clothes, you know. So that becomes an economic functioning, even without entering what Levy witnesses, yeah. which is a big German industry uh, using slave labor. Uh, in particular, the Siemens factory and mm. um, and the Buna factory that made uh, that tried to make artificial rubber never never actually produced any. But, yeah. um. So this this idea of it being in a context leads me to my next question, which is around the context of the work. Like, so my understanding is that it was first published in forty seven. That seems wrong. No, it's true. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is this the first time people are reading of the genocide? Like, is this... Like, I'm interested in who reads it and the context that it's published into. And, it, like, I mean, is there a... Is there a group of books about the Holocaust that are published at the time? Like, what does what does it look like at that time? Um, yeah, good question. So... Uh, it is published in 1947, but it's also rejected. So he sends it to Einaudi, <laughs> which is a big uh, Turin publisher, left-wing, 
his reader is Natalia Ginsburg, a Jewess herself, uh, and socialist herself. Uh, her husband, Leone Ginsburg, had just been murdered by the Nazis yeah. under torture. Uh, so he sends it to friendly people who, who reply, the time is not right. Uh. Okay. And for, for a book like this. So he basically pl- publishes it himself. Uh, in 2,000 copies. So yeah, the first answer to your question is that nobody reads, basically. No. <laughs> um, but also, um, he more, more sort of the bigger answer is that lots of people are writing, uh, but not hardly anyone is being published. And uh, when I got into this you know, many years ago, in the, the whole memory of the Holocaust issue, I, I so bought into what academia, academia told me at the time uh, when I was a student that there was a kind of Freudian Freudian uh, cycle of uh, repression and immersion, and that doesn't work <laughs> at all. Uh, the only repression is from outside, from the from the side. So the society represses it, um, but the victims of trauma don't repress it. They want to talk about it, mm, mm. and like in France, for example, uh, somebody's published a. A list that's pages and pages of memoirs that are written and nobody publishes mm. in the fifties. Mm. It starts at the end of the fifties. Uh, with yeah, so Einaudi, the same publisher that had turned them down, turned Levy down in forty-seven, picks up the book in fifty-eight, mm. mm. um, and then the year after it's uh, published in English, and then uh, the Eichmann trial happens in nineteen sixty, and obviously that's a global event uh, that completely changes the. Um, the perception of the Holocaust, uh, it makes it, you know, it makes it popular. People understand it, then they, they know of it more. But it, uh, but but it also turns it into a Judaicide, uh, mm, primarily. Mm, you mm, know, people mm. understand it, start to understand it primarily as a, as a genocide of Jews. Until then, so um, that's another part of the answer to your question. Uh, it's not that people didn't know. So every, in a sense, although not many books come out. There are newsreels that mm. show what happened at Belsen and, and uh, elsewhere. Um, there are magazines that publish the photos. M- my mum always remembered seeing this one um, very famous photo of uh, naked women waiting to be shot on a mass grave, uh, on the edge of a mass grave. Um, she saw it in a magazine in the early, you know, late 40s, early 50s and never forgot it. Um, it is there in public discourse. Uh, but then with the 50s, you know, people want to move on. Mm-hmm. And and even when it is there, um, it's kind of quite quickly, well, immediately really, uh, hijacked by multiple uh, sort of uh, uber narratives, uh, so super arching uh, um, narratives. Uh, so the nationalists want to put their spin on it and, and uh, incorporate, appropriate the victims as nationalist martyrs. The communists want to do the same and everybody becomes a communist martyr whether they were communists or not. Um, the Zionists don't do that to begin with but they do later yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, and so the voice of the individual survivor let alone the voice of those who didn't survive who are of course everyone right mm, that, mm, that, that, mm. that's uh, it's, they are the vast majority. There's an interesting anecdote on that sense of appropriation and the uh, and the kind of the failure to deal right uh, with uh, the after the immediate aftermath. There's a film, a documentary by Daniela Zanzotto called "If the Walls Could Speak," um, and it's about Drancy, which is a transit camp just outside Paris, mm. which is na- it's now a neighborhood, 
um, on the way from the airport you pass it with the, the with the metro um, so Drancy was where um, French and German authorities kept the Jews of Paris before sending them to Auschwitz and she interviews survivors um, and this woman remembers a French gendarme, the local police, the local Bobby, mm. uh, taking her nationality from her because she had been caught up in uh, French laws that took nationality away from Jews who had, um, who had either been born from uh, non-French Jewish parents or come to France in the 20, after 1919. So just very quickly, the reason the French government of Pétain did this was so they could deport them hand them over to the German and not be accused of handing over French citizens. Right? So nationalism underpins this. Um, so uh, she remembered being uh, denaturalized and having to hand, hand over her ID card. Then after Auschwitz, she goes back to Paris and the same gendarme asks her for ID. And of course, by that point, she's stateless. Mm. And she's, ha she's treated as stateless. Mm. Um, Yet at the same time, France makes you know, invests in a series of wonderful memorials in the late forties that are the Père Lachaise, the beautiful mm. cemetery in Paris. Mm. Uh, one of those says uh, is in memory of one hundred eighty thousand French men, women, and children who were deported and died, uh, or were deported to the camps. And of course, the the um, you know to some extent, you you know. If you're being generous, you can argue they are welcoming them back into the national fold. But in practice, the only children, certainly, who were deported from France were Jewish children. Yeah. And, and they were partly deported with the collaboration of the French authorities. And that you will never understand that from that memorial. No. Um, so, long-winded answer to, to your I, question. I feel like it, um, one of the most powerful um, parts of your essay is where you say that historical memory is a daily grind. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is um, the whole essay is about rereading um, If This Is A Man, um, and you talk about why it's relevant today, and people should really just read the essay. It's awful of me to ask you for an answer, no, and you no, know, a quick answer. But I felt it was incredible to be reading this at this time, and I just wonder if you have thoughts about why it's an interesting read. I, I always use the word important, but I don't know. That seems like a glib throwaway. But it, there's something very affecting about reading it at the moment. And I wonder, do you, like, is now a good time to reread it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's always a, a good time to reread it because, as uh, Eric Hobsbawm says, the whole of modern history is a continuation of the battle that started with the French Revolution, yeah. where you have those who want right, human rights and expand those, and those who react against them because they feel their privilege is under threat by discourses around rights. And that battle, you know, if you look, in, in a sense, it's a nice way of thinking about it because it helps you, you know, if you think about it in 200 years, we are much better off than we were back then. Mm. Um, so that, you know, that grind is working, we're uh, accruing more rights. And yet, how many still don't have it or don't have enough, uh, enough of their rights recognized? Uh, and so it's always a good time to, to reread it. We're not under more threat now than we were 40 years ago. It depends on which bit of the world you look at, really. Um, that said, uh, right now, you know, I cannot stop thinking about the 
Det var det, det ignominy av a, a, a US uh, government lawyer who goes to the Supreme Court to argue that personal hygiene is not a human right um, for a child or anybody else. Uh, I cannot stop thinking about the image of the father and uh, and, and his two-year-old daughter um, tucked into his shirt, uh, dead on the other side of the Rio Grande. Um, and so whether you're thinking of the US southern border or Manus Island or the southern Mediterranean where uh, you know my own country Italy has uh, made it illegal to rescue drowning people uh, which is insane um, yeah of course we need to you know we need to keep our guard up yeah you know? mm. we need to be be on the lookout and you know it's visited us this year Mm-hmm. Uh, with Christchurch and I think that the reaction was amazing I wrote about the reaction at the time but it was amazing but I'm a little worried that it's gone back to you know business as usual and that there are um, we know there are uh, New Zealand neo-fascists and racists who write things online and maybe they're not organized maybe thanks to, thanks to the government they won't have uh, easy access to weapons but they are there mm. And we need to address that. We can't wait for another egregious uh, thing to then voice our collective uh, despair. So uh, whatever helps us uh, find the courage, because it is courage. It's it's not heroism, but it is courage to mm. to make the small gestures of calling people out uh, when they're casually racist and so on. What you know, whether it's reading Levy or or not, maybe it's something much more kind of you know less intellectual and and, and more uh, relevant to 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 people, but. Whatever it is, we need it. And the thing that exercises me most is the hypocrisy of uh, new rights. Uh, you call them what they want, what you want. I'm not enamored of finding a label for it. Um, but, you know, uh, new racists, new right-wing movements um, who use a kind of um, perfunctory, fake um, homage uh, to the the genocides of the past, particularly to the Holocaust, mm. who use, mm. exploit the Holocaust to present themselves as anti-racist or not anti-Semitic. And yet, simultaneously, they, you know, let migrants drown or uh, uh, refuse or, or separate mothers from children or mm. parents from children, for that matter. Um, and I think we need to act on that. We need to, we need to call out the hypocrisy. Uh, and if it, if it, yeah, it also it's awkward because it means, um, it means maybe telling people that uh, the formal the formal institutionalized memorial uh, memorials to to past uh, past injustices um, need to be revisited if they're giving uh, people a platform to. Mm pretend that they're not racist then i think you know we better we better not having the the formal commemoration mm. yeah i as a writer and i think i think i think this is just me thinking every problem looks like a nail when you've got a hammer but this control of narrative i think that's what's so interesting when you talk about this idea that there was a lag from the outside world to talking about these things it almost seems like they were racing around trying to find a comfortable way of telling the story and these ideas of super narratives and stuff like that seem really interesting and I guess also within that there's I often think about the question of translation you know like I think about um, this book's written in Italian 
very carefully and then I am only able to read it in English and I just wonder have you got any thoughts about like the your essay includes your own translations of some of the of some of the quotes from the book mm -hmm. and you've left some um, things untranslated which I think is a really interesting choice as well can you talk a little bit about what it is to shift a book like this from Italian to English or other languages, perhaps. Yeah, I I have to I have to put my hand up and say I'm not I'm not a trained translator, <laughs> just like I'm not a trained literary scholar. Um, but uh, and so, you know, you can't think about Levy in English without considering Stuart Wolf's translation. Yes. That's the translation yes. almost everyone will read, yeah, and it's I'm a reading. fantastic translation. I, I I occasionally made my own because. Uh, well, I was doing a microanalysis of individual sentences, mm. and it was very important to be able to acknowledge Levy's choice of word. I was, I, I had the, you know, the luxury of not being so concerned about how it flowed yeah. uh, in English because um, it wasn't part of a context; it wasn't part of a paragraph or a page. Mm. Um, so I gave him translations that uh, were a little more literal, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I left a couple of things untranslated, although in the um, in the published version uh, those, <laughs> those will be translated uh, and uh, yeah I left things untranslated sometimes because um, the so one of the key characteristic of Auschwitz is uh, a linguistic problem mm, yeah. yeah so Auschwitz is a multilingual place uh, where the three dominant languages are Yiddish Polish and German mm. Uh, and for those who don't speak those, you know, the Western Jews are all called Franzosen or, or French, yeah. whether they're French or Italian or Dutch, <laughs> oh it doesn't matter. <laughs> and um, and if you don't, if you didn't speak any of those three languages, uh, your chances of survival were very slim. Um, first thing you had to learn was your number in German and not answering, your, your, you know, not answering to a call. So not understanding immediately the number spoken really quickly um, could mean death. So, you know, the, uh, most of the survivors come from uh, Eastern Europe. They come from, you know, they are German, German speakers or Yiddish speakers or Polish speakers. Um, so there's that, that issue of multilingualism. And then there's a separate issue, which is that Auschwitz, because of what we said about how it kind of challenges and, and uh, subverts a normal society, mm. um, it creates a necessity to... Uh, kind of create new sem semantic meaning. Uh, re semant. Re it's not a. It's not a word. I was going to say resemantize. That's not a word. It should be. It should it's be. A great, it's I, a great I, new I, word that I, we I, just I, made yeah. up. So find, <laughs> create, yeah, invent new meaning for words that already exist. Mm, so a mm. uh, great example is uh, Morgen früh, which is German for tomorrow morning. Mm. But in Auschwitz, in Auschwitz language, it means never, mm. because to think about tomorrow morning makes no sense because mm. chance yeah um it's part of the fatalism and also the humor right so in other words um to understand the concentration camp experience we need to be put in front of the um discomfort of not understanding yeah um and this is yeah this is hard to do and because you know uh, i as i said I, you as you said i work on Hollywood cinema if they don't subtitle or if they don't dub, you know, people won't watch it, people won't understand. And yet, 
the way to really make people understand the isolation is to leave it unsubtitled mm. um, or, or you know find the solution to that um, so that was partly that was partly why but as I said in the published version <laughs> for the same reasons of accessibility yeah. um, uh, we have translated everything there's a moment where I think there are two quotes about not understanding that um, in my version were not translated and it yeah, was just such yeah. a it was yeah it was one of those beautiful moments where yeah, I was like oh my right. god that's amazing yes. well I mean Levy <laughs> leaves them in uh, untranslated mm. in, the, in the book mm. and um, but you kind of get the meaning from the context uh, one is uh, and they come at really close to each other mm. uh, within a few pages and it's his it's his uh, introduction to the camp camp is that he he has traveled for three days uh, no more than that seven days they're thirsty and he sees an icicle uh, outside the window and tries to grab it and uh, and then assess strikes him and says that he can't and he says why warum and uh, and the german guard says here is kind warum so you the, here there is no why literally mm. You can't ask why, and there is no why, and, when, and that's kind of an inherent truth truth of the camp. Um, if you ask why you can't reach, then what about asking why? Why killing, you know, people? Why why murdering people? Um, and then the, shortly afterwards, he and, he and and another inmate meet a, a third inmate who's from France, and at the bottom of his bowl, he has carved uh, in French "Ne pas chercher à comprendre" or "Do not try to understand." And that's a different approach to the issue of uh, incommunicability. It's mm. it's the inmate reminding himself not to attempt because otherwise you go mad yeah. because there is no why. So they go together, and the fact that he's carved at the bottom of his bowl is um, kind of wonderfully symbolic and also, uh, you know, it's a painful reminder that the bowl is absolutely everything to an inmate. They're given it when they arrive and uh, losing it means death basically so they sleep on it they use it as a pillow they use it for their uh, for their food of course and they also use it in lots of other ways that maybe are too too upsetting to talk about um but yeah so hence the hence the living untranslated originally but um on the translation i want to plug um uh, on the 31st of July for the centenary, uh, my colleague from Translation Studies, Marco Sonzoni, uh, and his col uh, collaborator, Harry Thomas, are bringing out a new um, edition of selected poems from Primo Levi uh, with new translations that they've made. Uh, and the poems are wonderful and haunting. Um, it's going to be, I think, limited limited edition, 100, <laughs> 150 copies, maybe 100 even. Uh, so, you know, people should look out for the opportunity to pick that up. It, it's really interesting work. And that, I mean, that is a really good reminder. I totally forgot about that 31st of July is the 100th anniversary of Primo Levi's birth, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes it which is. Which is an amazing thing, to amazing moment to think about.